welcome to the Express Results Bulletin for Which Decade is Tops and Pops, Season 3, Episode 4. Once again, Nick, Trev and I are joined by a Patreon subscriber, in this case, John Pierce. Hi, John. Hello. John has possibly the unique distinction of being the only person that Nick, Trev and I have all met in real life, apart from our respective partners. I mean, I don't want you to think we're being cliquey here. It's a list of one. I feel deeply honoured to be on that list, and I can only imagine this will make it the best episode that's ever been. That's the spirit. <laughs> oh, and John, this is a question I like to ask all of our participants for the sake of our listeners. It used to be, what decade were you born in? But having spoken with Hedro last time, wasn't it? I've amended the question to, in what year were you 12 years old? I was 12 years old in 1990. And I would very much describe my musical taste as rooted into the 90s and indeed deep into Britpop. Everything before and after is simply wrong and incorrect. <laughs> it's nice to have you generationally pegged. You are also, in that case, the junior member of the team, which you're the voice of youth, John. It's not a position I often hold. We're getting hip and cool here. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this is edgy. Oh, my God. He's going to be talking about all that drill and hot hip music, isn't he? Oh, he's not. He so isn't. Right. We have some results. And after a very, very closely fought battle, just, and I mean just in last place, earning minus one points for the 1960s Loop De Loop by Frankie Vaughan. I have some comments. We have a new commenter, Lockpo Lockpo. Welcome, Lockpo Lockpo. And they say, Loop to Loop pales, quite literally, against the US original by Johnny Thunder, itself heavily indebted to Sam Cooke's far superior Having a Party, a hit earlier in 62. I dislike this version's overbearing jolliness. While Malcolm the Break Doctor says, I actually enjoyed the infectiously joyful energy in this, notwithstanding the fact that it is a nursery rhyme and a slightly pointless cover version possibly shamelessly capitalising on his clearly significant fan base at the time. Also, not really my cup of tea. Mixed review there from Malcolm. And James Centres of Sound says, fairly innocuous stuff. The drum fills are actively excellent, but it runs out of steam after about 30 seconds, which is fatal from an alleged dance track. Seriously, though, that drummer get his number. John, you put this in meh. Uh, I don't care about this at all. I have no emotions about it. I listened to it on the podcast and I went, that's happened. And then I went on in my life and hopefully I'll never hear it again. The same was true of Frankie Vaughan, I think, in many ways. <laughs> I think he just did it once and then that was it. Never thought of it ever again. This is what I really like about getting the guests on, because they can say what about 90% of what our reviews would be. The amount of times when I'm going, I have nothing to say about this, Jesus Christ. How am I going to eke out a 17-minute monologue about it? And then somehow I always manage. Oh, God, I hear you. There are two tracks coming up in the next episode where I had exactly that experience. It's not easy doing this here. I know we make it seem easy. It's not easy. It's hard. I do have more opinions about future tracks. I'm not just here to go, I don't care about any of this. I think we had fewer comments about Frankie Vaughan than for any of the other tracks as well. But into the Met Zone, sweeping up into the Met Zone by the skin of its teeth, 
roll over Beethoven by the Electric Like Orchestra from the 1970s and scraping into the Met Zone from the opposite end after a very close battle for third place, it's Scream and Shout, Will I Am and Britney Spears for the 2010s. We'll start with comments for ELO. Jeff says, ELO murders roll over Beethoven. The orchestral stuff jars horribly against the formula rip-off rock and roll riffs. The Beatles did it so much better. James says, I like ELO in general, but this is just such a mess. A load of misfiring elements which don't gel together at all, and it seems to go on forever. I don't hate it, but it's easily the weakest thing this week. While Alex, another former guest on this bulletin, says, I'm going to have to give ELO a reluctant point, as this is from a long tradition of covers that go down well as an encore but have no reason to exist outside the live arena. But it's fun enough to overcome my grumpiness. My general comment, no conversation about pop classical crossover is complete without a mention of Sky. They brought together musicians such as John Williams, widely regarded as one of the two best classical guitarists of his era, and session bass legend Herbie Flowers, Bowie, Elton John, T-Rex, wrote the bass line to walk on the wild side and uh, composed Clive Dunn's granddad. Thank you for reminding me about Sky, Alex. I hadn't thought about them in many a long year and I probably shan't think about them again. Sorry. It's the other John Williams, isn't it? Not the classical composers. Yeah. Yeah, because I've got some of his stuff as well. Naturally, he gets obscured by, in my world, because I'm a Star Wars fan, <laughs> by John Williams. But yeah, that's a good reference. I like it. What you can't see, listeners, but we can see, is that um, Trev is talking to us from a cave of Star Wars memorabilia. There's a big cupboard behind, which is stuffed full of it. That's the small cupboard as well. I think what we did miss with ELO, which is a, a bit of an irony about the whole thing, is that this whole thing about them trying to bring classical music into like rock music... But the whole point of Rollover Beethoven is that Chuck Berry wrote it because his sister at home was monopolising their home piano to play classical music. And it was basically him writing a tune to get off so he could play his songs on it, which is the sort of opposite of what ELO were doing. Well, I think it was ironic. A lot of early 80s pop thought of itself as ironic. I think ELO were being deliberately ironic, taking a rock and roll track, which is Yarboo Beethoven, and then reintroducing Beethoven to it. That's one of the reasons why I gave it a point. I don't agree it's a mess. I think there are some nice touches throughout where the two elements do gel together really well. But I'm in a minority here. John, what about you? I was confused by this song because I knew Rollover Beethoven as the theme music to a little-known ITV sitcom from 1985, which starred Nigel Planer, which nobody remembers and i had to google to make sure i hadn't imagined and is indeed a real thing they used that song as the theme music to it mm. i didn't remember anything about the show apart from the title until i googled it a couple of days ago and i quite enjoyed the show when it was on when i was seven because i was a weird child so i had some fondness to it but it's by no means a great song and elo i think trev said have done infinitely many better songs than that in their history that was the overwhelming consensus from almost all of our commenters i've got to know more about this what possible comic scenario for a sitcom could the song roll over beethoven work for well what i can tell you trev is uh being as i'm a, a friend of mike i have organized and i've got the wikipedia page open 
Uh, <laughs> Nigel Plainer plays a millionaire pop star, Nigel Cochran, who turns life in a sleepy Surrey village upside down when he purchases the manor house. He's dawn in a recording studio in his new home and planning to record his first solo album there. He enlists the help of a local piano teacher to help him master the keyboard. An unlikely friendship, then romance, develops. Oh, it's a bit like to the manor born. Nouveau riche type moves into posh house. Romance ensues. And that rings a very, very vague bell, actually. Let's move on to comments for Will I Am and Britney Spears. Lockpo Lockpo, who put it first, said, Will I Am can slash could be absolutely waste but he can slash could be stupidly brilliant too. And this was probably the last time that he was just that. I love this. The Talisa thing, which I wasn't aware of, explains the faux Britney effect. Hedgerow says, I am prone to ignore artist capitalization when it gets too precious for my taste, but Will I Am is just good crazy enough that he deserves the recognition. And Malcolm says, Pure dance pop, top production, party vibes. Not much to it lyrically, to say the least, but great commercial dance floor sing-along fodder and sounds fresher now than it probably did then. John, I think you have a specific memory attached to this tune. I do. So occasionally I will go out in Leeds with people I used to work with and inevitably, despite my best efforts, we will end up at B at 1. And often they will be playing cheesy pop hits and we can all have a sing and a dance and have a generally lovely time if we don't think too hard about how much we just paid for a waste cocktail. (laughs) But sometimes some more modern dross will come on and people 20 years younger than me will suddenly appear on the dance floor and I will retreat to our table and pine out of the window at the northern market over the road and wish that I was drinking a nice pint of lovely beer and possibly a chicken shawarma that I'm too full to eat, but will still eat because I'm fat. This song is the sound of the rubbish bit of my night out, and I hate it for it. Put it in the bin. I think it's the sound of a lot of misplaced donors. I absolutely get that. I bet there isn't a man alive, woman alive, has not had a, an unnecessary donor to the sound of Will I Am. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this one thing I did notice when I was editing the episode together and I insert Rory Hoy's decade-specific jingles at the start of each section. And when I inserted Rory Hoy's 2010s jingle, suddenly dawned on me that 2010s jingle is pure Will I Am. I think that's the beauty of Rory's jingles, really, isn't it? Because, like, the first time we all hear him, you go, oh, yeah, you've nailed that decade there. And that was really the pop sound of that decade, which, for better or for worse, but it is, you know, postcard of the era, Will I Am. That's what he was doing. And I do think it's aged better. Yeah, it's interesting that you and Malcolm both say the same thing. I, I don't hear that myself. I think it's only aged better in terms of I don't have to listen to it surrounded by 11 million other identical-sounding tracks at the same time. Therefore, that makes it a bit fresher. But Will I Am and Britney got unlucky because they were only fractionally behind our third-placed entry, earning one point for the 1990s. It's Deep by E17. Mark says... I've always liked this a ton. I think it sounds great, and the clumsiness of the lyrics lets it off the smug lover man hook, a bit like Craig David's Seven Days. It's all a very obvious front. 
Malcolm says, now I'm not a big fan of E17. What instantly came to mind was the great piss take by Goldie Looking Chain called R&B, which is basically this song. I acknowledge I'm not the target audience, but still, this is very silly and its earnestness induces a little nausea. James says, there was indeed an E17 take that split at my school. I was on Team E17, but in reality, I was listening to Kingmaker and the Spin Doctors. Anyway, the first few E17 singles I will still stand up for, especially Deep. I am not bothered by the silly lyrics, but the tune is timeless and the production with that synth scratch sound of the piano phrases is nothing short of gorgeous. And the harmonies with the swelling strings in the outro is perfection. NB, the top of the parts performance where they put them in a big fish tank, because obviously this is a song about diving, duh, is a classic too. <laughs> There's a comparison I will make with Deep that didn't occur to me at the time and occurred to me subsequently. I think there's a lot of PM Dawn in the arrangement of Deep. It's PM Dawn with adolescent spotty teenage boy uh, bad chat-up lines on top. You're not telling me Tony Mortimer was influenced by PM Dawn. Yeah, I absolutely think it was. Yeah, genuinely. PM Dawn were a big deal. It's sort of 91, 92. Why are you so surprised? Just I've seen Tony Mortimer. <laughs> I mean, this is brilliant. It's not brilliant. It's rubbish, but it's brilliant and rubbish. It's rubbishly brilliant and brilliantly rubbish. It's stupid. It's impossible to hate. I love it and I hate it. It's just stupid. Amazing. I mentioned that I was doing this podcast earlier to my wife, Sean, and she immediately started reciting all of the lyrics to this song. <laughs> and if you know my wife, that comes as quite a surprise to you because she's not musically inclined most of the time. But I think we might be doing a dance to it later on when she gets back from the gym. Do you think um, young Sean might have been seduced by the idea of licking the knife and fantasising while Tony Mortimer has a fiddle? I'll tell you what, give me half an hour and I'll report back. <laughs> I have to say, I am slightly troubled knowing what the lyrical content of Deep is and you going, oh, I think we'll probably have a little dance to this when she gets home from the gym. The thing is, Nick, I'm not allowed to say shagging on this podcast. <laughs> That's true, yeah. John and his wife, Sean, actually missed the opportunity to have a dance to E17 Deep because throughout the month of February for my Friday night DJ residency, I went through the decades from the 70s to the 2000s. Start the 70s and then week three, we did the 90s. And John and his good lady attended that night and Sean, who never dances, enjoyed it so much, she actually danced. But just before they got there, early doors I played Deep by E17 for the very first time nobody else at all may never play it again I think dancing in public might have been too much for her into that one Surely E17 is in the same spot that you put Careless Whispers it's end of the night erection section mm. dancing it's not like oh yes report to the dance floor it was a sequencing issue I think you're right it is cherished by Cool and the Gang and not Wake Me Up Before You Go Go I think you are correct there all right there is now the most humongous jump in points. Our top two were ridiculously far ahead of the pack, which comes as no surprise, I'd say. But in second place, earning two points for the 2000s, Lose Yourself by Eminem. Lockpo Lockpo says, the kind of record where when you hear it for the first time, you immediately know it's going to be the biggest hit ever, as well as the artist's signature song. Very powerful chorus. But do I love it as much as I did then? Not really. 
James says, yeah, obviously this was a classic from the start. The way the rap gels with a fairly simple backing is nothing short of genius. As for the man himself, I have found myself mellowing to him a great deal over the last few years. And on a listen to his recent-ish hits, he seems to be more on form than he has been for quite a while. While Hedgerow, who placed it first, says he has the most to say about the human condition here. He's number one because he wanted it more. John, I think you liked this, didn't you? I did. I said that in any other week, I would have almost certainly put this in first position. This is a magnificent song. As discussed, Eminem is possibly a terrible, terrible person who has said some awful things in his time. But he is enormously talented. His flow is completely unique, which is one of the reasons why he broke through from a, a crowd of uh, other rappers and how he managed to be a white dude rapping in Detroit and not get killed because he's simply so talented. You could give this beat and these lyrics to a hundred other rappers and nobody else would make Lose Yourself like this. It's simply incredible. I like it way more now than I did when it came out, I would say. I'm the opposite of that commentator there. I love it more now than I did at the time. There's nothing unpalatable in this, and that's quite rare. Some of his best pop records just have a line or two in that you're just like, oh, why? Why is that in there? Because otherwise, what a great tune, whereas this doesn't have anything that's grim or unnecessary, I don't think. I know what you mean, because on the following 90s night, the next Friday was 2000 nights, and I thought, oh, I'll put on the real Slim Shady. That'll work. And I was listening to the real Shim Shady and I was thinking, oh, God, I kind of wish I hadn't played this now. It just had some icky moments that weren't fun. Anyhow, in first place, earning three points for the 1980s, Africa by Toto. Now, this was interesting. Until 15 minutes before the end of our voting deadline, Africa by Toto were all set to be our most popular track ever in the history of this podcast, as every single voter had placed it in their top two. However, 15 minutes before the end, our final set of votes came in, and that voter placed Africa by Toto in the mess. This means that Africa has to settle for being our joint lead of the most popular track ever. And that's an honour it shares with Friday, I'm in love by The Cure, which everyone put in the first two apart from Nick, who made it meh. And who was that rogue voter? Step forward, James Centuries of Sound, who says... Sorry to be a wet blanket, but beyond the moody atmospheric intro, I don't get the appeal of this at all. Why is this, quote marks, good? Why we built this city by starship is, quote marks, bad. I genuinely still have no idea. However, Lockpo Lockpo says... This one is indestructible. And hello, they also wrote and played on Michael Jackson's human nature. As for lyrical coherence or incoherence, it doesn't really matter when there are lines like, I seek to cure what's deep inside, frightened of this thing that I've become, that will resonate, unwittingly or not, with zillions of people. And Hedro says... I appreciate the effort to carefully assemble this in an exquisite manner that requires a lifetime of experience in the studio, but the lyrics place it perilously close to an audio version of a folly. I suspect that tension is the magic ingredient. 
And I've just got to add a zinger from Alex, who says, with rah-rah Rasputin and this, you have your history and your geography basically covered. <laughs> John, I don't even need to ask you what you think of Africa by Toto, but for the benefit of our listeners, would you care to tell them what you think of it? I would be very happy to. You should finish this podcast now. This song has won. Pack it up. This song has not won three points for whatever decade it came out in the 80s. This song has won a million T billion T points. It's won all the points. It's taken the points from all the other songs that you've ever listened to, and it's won. This isn't a great song, not a good song. I don't even like it particularly. It's also an unstoppable beast. It's Africa by Toto. It's simply incredible. I have many a happy memory of sitting in sit poor folk down the road from my and Mike's house and trying to goad him into playing this at the end of the night. Once texting him almost a hundred times saying, play Africa by Toto, you expletive. Eventually he did. I didn't even dance to it. I'm, <laughs> I'm that kind of person. I love this song. I don't even know half the words. Turns out my MD knows all the words to it. A fact that completely surprised me, seeing as he never expressed any interest in music of any era at all. But today he recited every single word to it, word perfect. I checked. It's incredible. Crack it up, guys. You're done. It's true, John. Whenever I see you descending the step from the bar area to the dance floor area, I know that my night will have to end with Africa by Toto. Yes, again. And they say I haven't got a legacy. <laughs> what do we think about James? His question, why is this good while we built this city is bad? He doesn't get that. My question is, who's saying we built this city is bad? Me. Rolling Stone magazine at one point called it the worst record ever made. They did a, this list of all the terrible songs from history ever, and they said that we built this city is the worst record ever made. I think it's terrible. And I think the difference is... There's no heart and soul. What it says to me, this is the former Jefferson Airplane leading lights of the San Francisco countercultural summer of love hippie movement. Now it's the middle of the 80s. They've gone all corporate and they've written an anthem for all those people who sold out to the man who are now making their way in the corporate world. And they have the gall to say, we built this city on rock and roll, whereas 20 years earlier, they were trying to tear down all the structures with psychedelic rock. That's why I hate it. It's all sharp angles. Whereas Africa by Toto, as ludicrous as it is, has an underlying warmth. Did you know that the lyrics to We Built This City were written by Bernie Taupin? What? Yeah. So when Marconi's playing the mamba, which is a snake last time I checked, not a musical instrument, but he's playing the mamba, uh, Bernie Taupin is responsible for We Built This City. I think it's brilliant, We Built This City. I disagree with you entirely. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Marconi is playing the mambo, not the mamba, as in mambo italiano. Oh, well, sorry, Bernie. What do you think of We Built This City? A new podcast. Yeah. It's coming on for another 25 minutes. I quite like it, but I don't want to wade in on this. I'm happy to be the first guest on this new podcast, and I really like it as well. I'd happily dance to it. You're not going to get it. It's certainly not the worst record ever made, is it? Okay, so now, Nick, have you got a list of top 10 cities that have ever been built in pop songs? <laughs> well, look, <laughs> Lab Baby's version of We Built This City is worse than 
we built this city, surely. So it's not even the worst version of we built this city, is it? It's not the worst version because the cover version of it is worse than the original. Yeah, it can't be the worst record ever made because it's not even the worst version of we built this city. That's great. As a mathematician, I love the proof by contradiction. That's fantastic. I like the comment from Lockpo Lockpo uh, picking out the line, frightened of this thing that I've become because... Mm, this resonated with me very much two Sundays ago. Right. I have recently been playing the dame in the Knaresborough town panto, uh, sharing the stage with John, as it happened. And I was allowed to keep my beard for this role. I was a bearded dame. But my beard had to be dyed as a rainbow using eight different coloured hair waxes. And once the panto was over, I was left with eight different, almost full jars of coloured hair wax. And the more I looked, the more I thought, I really want to experiment with this on top. So two Sundays ago, I took a photo of all eight dye pots and I polled my Facebook friends and said, which colour should I dye my hair in this evening and go to the pub in this evening? The overwhelming mandate was for purple. So I did it. I put a photo on Facebook. But as I walked to the pub, not a word of a lie, my earworm round and round and round in a loop with Toto singing, frightened of this thing that I've become. I think that's exactly what they were going for when they were writing it, because they were going, right, what we'll do is we'll do this really sort of deep esoteric lyric that can mean all things to all different people. Uh, and maybe one day we'll connect with somebody walking up Waterbag Bank in Nairsborough who's got purple hair like a dickhead. Rising like Olympus above the Serengeti. Or the River Nid, in our case. I would like it put on record that I was the Facebook friend who said, obviously, absolutely do not do this. <laughs> you were, John. You were the lone voice of reason. I might go pink next weekend. Anyhow, let's look at the Master Scoreboard. Right. We're halfway through Season 3 now. So... Currently in last place with one point, the 2010s. In fifth place with two points, the 1990s. Then in joint third place with three points apiece, it's the 1970s and the 2000s. So still in second place with five points, despite being clobbered by Frankie Vaughan, it's the 1960s. And extending its lead, three wins out of the first five episodes, 11 points once again, it's the 1980s. I wonder what our next episode will do, if anything, to that master scoreboard. Oh, I think there's a change coming. There could well be. If you subscribe to our Patreon, you will already know what the next six tunes are going to be. For the rest of you, it won't be too long until the next episode drops. Until then, it's bye from Nick, Trev and John. You can say goodbye all together if you like. That's all. Fine. We built this Starbucks. We built this Starbucks and high and so built this Starbucks. You built this Starbucks and high and so. Right.